Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Bhurvaswa Tatsavitur Varenyam Argo Devasya Dhimahi Tiyo Yona Prachodaya May we meditate upon the splendor of the divinity, the supreme effulgence, and may that inspire our thoughts. Good morning. Today's topic is time and eternity. Throughout the year, every religious tradition in the world has certain festivals or commemorations that it holds. Some of these are based upon historical events or things that are meaningful to that tradition, Some of these celebrations are based on principles, but every one of these uh, traditions has a certain calendar of events that it observes. Now, some of the principles have spiritual significance, and two in particular are the ones we're going to look at today. Those are time and eternity. Now, two and a half weeks ago, we celebrated Shivaratri here, and four weeks from today is Easter Sunday. So this talk comes right between those two, and both of them are related to these ideas of time and eternity. So let's begin by asking, what is time? How do we experience it? First of all, time is something that's always with us. It's close at hand. There's no setting it aside. There's no escaping from it. Very often, we might feel that we don't have enough time. We're feeling stress. Sometimes we feel we're racing against the clock to get something done. We feel that time is running out. If we look at the hands of the clock, or today at a digital readout, we will see that time seems to be an objective, measurable phenomenon that moves at a steady pace. But on the other hand, is this the way we experience time? After an evening with friends, you might say, oh my goodness, where did the time go? And there is that old adage, time flies when you're having fun. On the other hand, if you're sitting through a bad movie, you might afterwards say, oh God, I thought it would never end. And of course, we all know that a moment of anxious expectation can seem like an hour. So the perception of time is, first of all, that on the clock, it seems to be objective and measurable. It moves forward in one direction at an invariable pace. But we perceive it in our own lives at different rates of time. Now, although it is such a powerful and ever-present force in human life, time proves elusive when we try to define it. But defining is essential to deep understanding of anything. And so we're going to try to do that. One by one, we're going to look at four key words that can help us to understand at a deeper level. And those four words are time, eternity, existence, and being. First of all, if we look in the dictionaries, we find out that time basically refers to when something happens or how long it lasts. Uh, That's a definition we get from Webster's New World Dictionary. Time is a measurable period or interval between two events or a period or interval during which something exists, happens, or acts. The Oxford English Dictionary defines time this way, a finite extent 
of continued existence. So yes, here we have again that affirmation that time is measurable or quantifiable. It is also some sort of duration or expanse between two of something else, two other factors. So we can draw a conclusion from this. For there to be time, there has to be other things. Other things also have to exist if there is time. Words are carriers of meaning very often, much more than we would think at first glance. And so we're going to look at these words in greater detail. A word that came up already in the definitions of time was exist or existence. To exist generally means to be or to have reality. Those are definitions that came out of the dictionary. As for the derivation, exist comes from a Latin verb existere, which literally means to step or come forth, to emerge, to appear, to be visible or manifest. That is the definition of existence. Furthermore, the Webster's New World Dictionary says to exist means to be in a given condition or place. So this means that existence has conditions attached to it. Now if we look even deeper, going to the, back to the Latin existere, we find that it comes from two other components. The prefix ex, which means from out of or outside of, and sistere, which means to cause to stand. So in Latin, existere meant to cause to stand outside of. So now we can ask ourselves, existence stands outside of what? And I would propose here that we use the word being. Now in casual usage, we generally say that existence means being, that we think that they mean pretty much the same thing. But in fact, they do not mean the same thing. And a lot of confusion arises from this casual use of words. Now, if we want to define things precisely and understand them at a very deep level, we need to have precisely defined terms that we can work with. We have the idea that time is relative, changing, impermanent. It exists outside of being. It comes forth. It is made to stand outside of this being. And what is this being? Being is the eternal source. It's pure, unchanging reality. Vedanta calls it sat, meaning being, or Brahman. In contrast, we can say that existence can better be defined by the Sanskrit word samsara, this ever-revolving cycle of birth, life, death, and rebirth. So another way to put it is to say that Brahman is being, existence is becoming a state of eternal change and evolution. Now, the Oxford English Dictionary, again, defines time as a finite extent of continued existence. So whatever forms a part of the universe and whatever forms a part of our life and our experience exists in time. It stands outside of or apart from the pure being that is eternity. Two other words just came up here in that little sentence. Part and apart from. And these give us another clue. If we dig very deeply, we find out that the word time, the English word time, derives ultimately from an ancient reconstructed Indo-European root, which means to part or to separate, to divide. So time is predicated on division, difference, and fragmentation, not on the wholeness that is Brahman 
reality, or eternity. Another etymology that is interesting here is the Sanskrit word for time. The word for time is kal, kala, and that derives from the root kal, which means to count. This is cognate with the English term calculate. So again, we have this idea that time is something measurable. Now, Albert Einstein said that time and space are variants coordinated from the observer's own standpoint in relation to which all else is moving. So I am the observer. Everything is moving in relation to me and my perception in the fields of time and space. And this is very close to Hindu teaching, which says that the true self, or Atman, is the eternal witness, Sakshin. And the world is Jagat. Jagat literally means that which moves. So here again we have that idea of a permanent, eternal self-witness and a moving creation all around it. So again, the idea of being and becoming. Time is measurable both near in every aspect of our daily life, from one minute to the next, and it is also measurable in very distant, remote ways. So, more distantly in the life of the cosmos, the sun makes its daily journey across the sky, bringing day and night. The moon brings the months. The seasons come and go. Years pass, decades pass, then centuries, then millennia. And all the while, against this moving of time, we have the distant stars and galaxies turning in the vastness of space, and we have living creatures journeying from life to death. Now, religions and philosophies throughout the world see that this whole idea of time presents a fertile field for exploration. And so they think, from this we can perhaps get an understanding of the origin of the universe, its structure, how it's put together, its functioning, how everything works, and where it's headed, what the direction is. And so this also relates to us in how do we get here, what are we doing here, and where are we going? And so for this reason, the whole idea of time is a fertile field of exploration for any religion or philosophy. How do we perceive time? There are different ways. First of all, there is what we call cyclical or natural time. Everything goes according to a cycle. Human culture depends on this. If we look back to our earliest ancestors, they were hunter-gatherers. They had to know when animals migrated, when they bred. They had to know when edible plants would flower and produce food. So they had to know what time it was in order to survive. Later on, as pastoralists, tending flocks, they would follow the flocks to greener pastures, again, as the wheel of the year turned. And then finally, when human beings settled down in agricultural communities, they had to have an idea of what time of year it was, so they would know when to plant the crops, when to harvest the crops, and when to lay aside food for the fallow season. So this was an internal round of creation, sustenance, and dissolution. And those words will figure later on again, creation, sustenance, and dissolution. Now this whole idea of a cycle of time takes on different forms in different parts of the world where the climate is different. But in the temperate zone, for example, it gave rise to the idea of four seasons. So we have, first of all, we winter, the season of dormancy. Then we have spring, the season of renewal, where things come back to life and they begin to grow. Then we have the season of summer, where things come to fruition. And then we have the season of autumn or fall, 
where we have ripening and harvest. And then again, the season of rest, the dormancy, the winter. So our early ancestors understood this, that their lives depended on cyclical time. And their lives became not only an engagement with time as the wheel of the year turning, but also as the fact that it was sacred. That the whole idea of survival meant to live meaningfully in this cosmos and also harmoniously with the universe. They perceived all of these natural forces as expressions of divinity. Now, in the big, big picture, we have the cosmic life cycles, the universes that come and go. And in Hinduism, for example, we find these measured in billions of years. So this, again, is very close to what modern science has taught us. But again, with cyclical time, there is the idea there is no absolute beginning and there is no absolute end. Now, the other way of looking at time is to look at it as linear or event-oriented. In the ancient Israelite religion, originally, their idea of time was that it was cyclical. And some of the Jewish holidays, such as Sukkot and Shavuot, are agricultural festivals. But then they also developed the idea that we can find religious meaning in historical events. The idea grew up that God intervenes to reward or to punish human behavior. Now, this was not exactly unique to the Israelites or original with them. Other ancient cultures had similar ideas. But this was emphasized very strongly in the Israelite worldview. And so it developed is this idea that time reveals divine purpose. And we have in Israelite tradition certain holy days that commemorate historical events that reveal divine purpose. Passover, coming out of the bondage in Egypt. Purim, where Esther saved her people from extinction. Hanukkah, the victory of the Hasmonean or Maccabeans over the occupiers of their territory in 164 BCE. So this linear time then later became a cornerstone of the Christian worldview. The idea that time has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a purpose. So in Christianity, in that worldview, time centers on the birth, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus, who stands at the very center of history. We even measure history in terms of B.C. and A.D., B.C. before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. So everything in the Christian worldview is seen as happening either before or after the appearance of Jesus Christ in this world, the appearance of God incarnate. This idea that there is an unrepeatable beginning evolving towards a single end also brings with us this idea of a final judgment and salvation for the deserving. Time becomes an arena for testing and opportunity in relation to judgment. So how a person acts in this lifetime creates eternal consequences. Here, Hinduism agrees completely. Yes, people are responsible for their actions. Actions have consequences. The law of karma is founded upon this very principle. But a finite action cannot produce an infinite effect. So this is where Hinduism and Christianity differ in that worldview. There are various meanings of time. So all of them, whether you know we follow this view or that view, all the meanings of time, interpretations of time, teach us how to live in this world, how to deal with ourselves and others, and how to relate to the divine. They lead to questions of deliverance or salvation, 
or perhaps of liberation or enlightenment, depending on what a tradition chooses to call it. So this raises a question, too. If human life is a journey through time, what lies at the end of the journey? Now, before talking about eternity, let's do a brief recap on time. Uh, we decided that time is an observable phenomenon. It's an observable cyclical process that was seen in the natural world. We see it in the passing of the seasons, day and night, and all of that. But time is also a linear or unidirectional process that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Also, time seems to be both a measurable, objective reality and a subjective perception. Our perception of time can be that it is moving very fast or very slow, whereas the clock ticks on at the same rate always. So both of these figure into our experience of time. At the physical level, time is steady, irreversible. But at the mental and emotional levels, time seems variable, depending upon our circumstances, our frame of mind, and what we're doing. There's one other thing I haven't mentioned yet. In the outer world, the objective clock ticks on and on, minute by minute. But in our inner world, our mind jumps between perceptions, thoughts, associations, and memories. We can be here in this moment, and then suddenly we are reliving something from the past. We're anticipating something from the future. So time-wise, at a mental level, time can be all over the place. Now, this potency of remembered impressions, called samskaras in Sanskrit, is very much a part of our life. They can spring to life at any moment and take us elsewhere. And even if they don't take us elsewhere, they color the experience of the moment, because every one of us is a product of our past experience. We can imagine future events, and we may be right or wrong. How something eventually works out may be totally different from any of the fantasies that we've concocted thinking about it. But again, the one principle remains that the mind can freely revisit the past and fantasize about the future. Now, let's go on to eternity. Just like there are different views of time, there are different views of eternity. There are two basic ways of looking at it. The first one is that eternity is an endless extension of time. The other is that eternity is utter timelessness. So in the ancient Israelite tradition, there was the idea of endless time. Eternity is endless time. And the earliest Christians adopted the same worldview. The whole idea that eternity was essentially everlasting time. But then in the 4th or 5th century, Augustine came up with a new idea. He said that the beginning of the world marked the beginning of time. And of course, the first verse of Genesis begins, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So when God created the natural world, he also created time. What was going on before? There is no before. Only God. For Augustine, eternity and time are eternally different. Eternity is not time extended. Eternity is timelessness. Now we also have a similar idea from Plotinus, the great philosopher who in the West was very close in his thinking to the principles of non-dualistic Vedanta, that eternity is timelessness. Now, are these definitions mutually contradictory? No. We can't think of eternity without the idea of time. 
So we either affirm time or we negate it. We say that eternity is endless time, we're affirming time. If we say that eternity is timelessness, we're negating it. So is there a way to reconcile time and eternity? Yes, there is, and I'll get to that later. Now, let's return to the, what prompted this whole inquiry into time and eternity in the first place, and that is the two holidays of Easter and Shivaratri. Each one of these is based on a narrative with a spiritual message. Each one attempts to deal with the imperfection of our human condition and to settle the troubling question of human mortality. So to understand the meaning of Easter, we have to go all the way back to an ancient myth, the myth of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. There are many mainstream Jewish interpretations of this. There are several Jewish mystical interpretations of what this story means. And I'll go to one from the Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. And I like this interpretation because it has a lot in common with Hindu thought. In this interpretation, the Garden Eden represents the state of spiritual perfection that is our original nature. Adam and Eve represent the principles of polarity. Each one is the opposite of the other. The serpent represents the power of fragmentation, of taking the wholeness of eternity and making it into the brokenness of the manifest universe. And this power of fragmentation is necessary for the manifestation of the universe, for the whole process of creation to unfold. The tree, which represents the knowledge of good and evil, is a symbol for the experience of duality, the conditions in the here and now. The Christian's interpretation of the story of Adam and Eve is radically different from that. They believe that all the woe, suffering, and imperfection of human existence stems from Adam and Eve's disobedience. And as punishment, God exiled them and their progeny to this present place where life is harsh and bounded by time. This later developed into the idea of original sin. Paul kind of hinted at it, and then Augustine developed it into this whole theory three and a half centuries later. And that has the idea that all of humanity carries a burden of guilt. And there was a common saying that was taught in grade school back in the 1800s when children were learning to read. The ABCs, every one of them had a little phrase to go with it. And the one for A was, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. (laughs) Now, the ancient Israelites had the idea, of course, of sin and expiation. And the main activity at the temple in Jerusalem was the ritual slaughter of animals to expiate for sins. And this happened until the year 70 when the temple was destroyed. For Christianity, the idea lingered on, but the sacrifice became God's own son, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Paul's theology, you only need to believe this, and then through their faith will come salvation. The reward is eternal life in heaven a restoration to that original state of grace in the divine presence. Easter, therefore, commemorates the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. It also signals the final triumph over death. Now, let's look at Shivaratri. Shivaratri, believe it or not, has a similar function, but it gets the idea across in a very different way. In India, there are many different stories about what Shivaratri represents. I'll tell you the one that I learned from my guru, Swami Prabhavananda. Once there was a peasant 
who eked out a living for his family by going into the forest to gather firewood, which he would sell to the villagers. As time went on, the supply dwindled, and the peasant found it harder and harder to find sufficient wood. He had to work longer and venture farther into the forest each day. One day, after going deeper and deeper into the forest without much wood at all, he noticed, to his dismay, that the sun was far past its zenith. It was too late to start back. There was not sufficient time to see him safely home. Darkness would soon descend, and the forest at night was filled with peril. What could he do? Sick at heart, he climbed to the lower branch of a tree and settled there. At least this position off the ground would grant him a modicum of safety. After a while, he began to feel the pangs of hunger, for he had not eaten since early that morning. And with darkness descending, he began to feel cold. And as he felt cold, he shivered, and some of the leaves shook loose from the tree and fell to the ground. The cries of wild animals and other strange sounds echoed through the darkness, increasing his distress. And in fright, he wept his tears falling earthward. All night long he kept awake, crying out to Shiva to relieve his misery. And then in the morning, with the first rays of the sun, he was blessed with the vision of the Lord. Now what does the story mean? The wood gatherer represents the human soul. The forest represents the world we live in, the forest of the world. We have only a certain amount of time to accomplish our day's work and to head back home. We have only a certain amount of time to accomplish our life's work and head back home. Time is against the woodcutter. And then we have the idea of the darkness, the night. And this illustrates the dangers that are lurking all about us in this world. These are maya, that power to take away our understanding, to mask everything a fundamental misunderstanding of the world and ourselves. All of this causes fear and anguish, and this is unavoidable. And then finally, there's the idea of human mortality, that our life will end. So here we have the woodcutter in the tree, sitting up in the darkness, the darkness of non-enlightenment, fasting and keeping vigil. When the leaves fall, they fall to the ground, and unbeknown to the woodcutter, the tree that he sought refuge in was a vilwa tree, sacred to Shiva. And at the base of that tree was a linga. And as the leaves fell, they touched the linga. And then when he wept, and his tears fell to the ground, they bathed the linga. So without knowing it, the woodcutter was fulfilling the conditions of Shiva worship. And in addition to that, he turned his mind all night long toward Shiva. And in the morning, he was blessed with the vision of Shiva, which means the knowledge of his own true being, the knowledge of the self. He became enlightened. And so at that moment of enlightenment, the woodcutter experienced eternity. And that state of spiritual liberation came to him through the Lord's grace. Now, both Easter and Shivaratri are based on this idea of the Lord's grace, God's grace. Both of these holidays deal with the suffering and imperfection of human life and with the idea of human mortality. And each presents the solution which involves grace. Those similarities aside, there are a great many differences also. Christians view the resurrection of Christ as the pivotal event in history, a unique event, a universal atonement through which suffering humanity is promised eternal life. 
The Hindu view is quite different. The events of the poor peasant and his experiences are not a unique event in history. As a matter of fact, they are universal to all of human experience, to every human being at every time in every place. So they do not lie at the center of history. The idea is that this idea of salvation, liberation, enlightenment is inherently possible in everyone at any time. In the Hindu view, history has no center and time has no eschatological or end-of-the-world function. Time is cyclical overall, ever-repeating. We have ever-repeating beginnings, middles, and ends. Universes come and go. And so this, in the Hindu view, reflects the idea of God as the creator, sustainer, and dissolver of the universe. A while back I mentioned that those words are going to come up again, the creation, sustenance, and dissolution. But beyond these changing conditions of the beginnings and the middles and the ends lies the changelessness of eternity. So now we're going to look at a view of time as a devotee of Shiva would see it. First of all, the image of Shiva is very often portrayed holding a trident. This three, it's like a pitchfork with three things. Okay, uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, the trident represents Shiva's powers of creation, sustenance, and dissolution. Everything has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and this is always repeating with everything. There are many other triads. For example, time, we see it in three ways. We see it as past, present, and future. And where there's time, there's got to be change. Without change, there could be no time. And also, where there is change, we suddenly have to have more than one. As soon as we have the idea of two, there's always going to be a third present. The third is the something that relates or contrasts the two. And so again, we have this triad. And still another triad, which our experience is based on, is the idea that there's a knower, a process of knowing, and something known. So all of this is very much based on these ideas of three. Now, beyond that is the one. Uh, Vedanta calls this Parabrahman, the Supreme Brahman. Uh, the Shaivites would call him Parmashiva, the Supreme Shiva, meaning pure, infinite, non-dual consciousness. It is even beyond the idea of the Absolute. Sri Ramakrishna said that the many come from the one alone. The relative emerges from the Absolute. But, as Sri Ramakrishna said, the Absolute and the relative belong to one and the same reality. Even when the many disappear, when the many disappear, even the idea of the one disappears also. Therefore, it is impossible to explain what Brahman is. The point is that the supreme reality is beyond thought, for thought involves difference, change, and sequence. And difference, change, and sequence are the ingredients of time. A, a great Shaivite seer who lived 900 years earlier than Ramakrishna said, In Paramashiva, the supreme Shiva, the yogin rises beyond the experience of Shiva, who is the transcendental void and attains the higher experience, the highest experience of all. That is the experience of transcendence in immanence and immanence in transcendence. And so this is where the idea that time and eternity become reconciled. And this is known as paradvaita, the supreme non-dualism. 
This is the ultimate state of undivided consciousness that excludes nothing and reconciles time and eternity. Similarly with the philosopher Plotinus, he called spiritual realization the flight of the alone to the alone. The alone, small a, meaning the individual soul. The alone, capital A, meaning the divine reality. And then he said something else about the big capital A alone. He said, one is the transcendence of separation and not the negation of manyness. So for Plotinus, one is a quality and not a number. And we will find this later again in Christian theology. Now, Abhinava Gupta and Ramakrishna were very similar in their thinking. And Abhinava Gupta said that the world and all its living beings are made of the same reality and exists in the same reality, consciousness or Brahman. And some 2,500 years ago, Greek philosopher Heraclitus put it this way, Our senses reveal many things, but really there is only God. And then, of course, in the Chandogya Upanishad, we have uh, the same thing, Sarvam Kalvidam Brahma. All this world is truly God, Brahman. The problem is we do not experience Brahman as consciousness in itself. In our ordinary, unenlightened awareness, we experience consciousness as difference, division, with many, many different qualities. We miss the higher knowledge of our true divine being. In the Shaiva view, the universe is Shiva's own self-expression, consciously projected out of his own inherent joy. And that is the joy of being infinite, of being one without a second, the joy of absolute freedom, where there is nothing to limit you or to constrain. So Shiva enters into this creation willingly in a spirit of spontaneous playfulness. The world is Leela, the divine play. So Shiva, in this Leela, appears as Jiva, The infinite divine self appears as all these individual small selves, assuming this lesser role of ordinary human existence. In this, we experience not only the joy, but also we experience the suffering. But with enlightenment, all that changes. In the Taittiriya Upanishad, we have the story of a young man named Bhrigu, who was the son of Varuna, one of the gods. And Bhrigu wanted to attain enlightenment, so he followed his father's instruction and meditated. And he performed all of the proper concentration of thought. And in this process, Bhrigu came to know, in turn, one by one, first of all, with ever-deepening insight, that Brahman is matter, anna. Then Brahman is life, prana. Then Brahman is mind, manas. Brahman is intelligence, vijnana. And so at each and every one of these steps, Varuna urged his son, go deeper, concentrate more. Through concentration, seek to know Brahman. And then finally, here's what happened, the exact words of the Upanishad in translation. He knew that Brahman is joy. For truly, from joy all beings are born. Once born, by joy they live. Toward joy they move, and into joy they merge. So Bhrigu reached enlightenment through concentrating the mind, that is, by taking charge and focusing his total awareness on the divine. And the reason the story is preserved in the Upanishad is to let us know that we too can do this. Now, how do we master time? 
First of all, if we look at our awareness, we find that what is present to the awareness changes constantly. How many images come to mind during a single day, during an hour, during a minute? Even from second to second, this constant change, this is succession, one thing after another. So we cannot separate time from the perception of objects or the formation of concepts. And this succession depends on the sense of before and after. That is the sense of time. So time, kala, is one with sequence, krama. Again, I mentioned early on this whole idea of difference and the fact that the word time, the English word time, derives from an Indo-European root, which means to part or to divide. And so there has to be this difference and this relationship for there to be time. But in the oneness of the Supreme Self, there is no difference. There is no division. And where consciousness is undivided, there is no time, only eternity. Now, how do we get there? For Christianity, we have the teaching that Easter is the central moment in history. And in biblical theology, there are two words for time. One of these is the Greek word chronos, and the other is the word kairos. Chronos is the word from which we get our English chronic, chronology, um, chronicle, all of those words. And the chronos refers to this extensiveness of time, the movement of time, the here and now where everything is changing. This is the conditioning under which our mortal lives unfold. But there's a second word for time, which is kairos. And kairos suggests a quality. And Plotinus, attempting to describe the divine, said that one denotes not a number, but a quality. So in Christian theology, Kairos came to be a decisive moment laden with crisis or opportunity. Easter is a moment of Kairos, marked by the crisis of the crucifixion and the opportunity of resurrection and eternal life for the faithful. It is a gift of divine grace. The Shivaratri narrative also concerns a decisive moment laden with crisis and opportunity. Trapped by time and forced to endure a terrifying night in the forest, the wood gatherer responds by directing his mind Godward and attains illumination and liberation through Lord Shiva's unfailing grace. So in a bigger picture, that story is us, the human beings, in this world where time is moving on and on, bringing both joy and pleasure, but also fear and misery. And how do we respond? Like the woodcutter, we should direct the mind Godward, and in this way, we eventually will attain liberation through divine grace. Now, this idea of grace is rather interesting. We spoke earlier about the emanation or projection of the world, the sustenance of the world, and the dissolution of the world, the beginning, the middle, and the end of all things. And these are three of Shiva's powers. But Shiva has five powers. The first one is called Nigraha or Tirodhana. This is the power of veiling, self-veiling. In order for there to be this whole play of creation with the beginnings, the middles, and the ends, Shiva has to veil his own eternity, his oneness, his unchanging reality. So we do not experience that. We experience the change. And then there's the idea of Shiva revealing himself, 
the power of anugraha, of self-revelation. And this is the idea, again, of divine grace. Grace is the divine's own self-revelation. Sri Ramakrishna's disciple, Swami Brahmananda, spoke of this very nicely. The idea always comes up about grace versus self-effort. And Swami Brahmananda said, The breeze of God's grace is eternally blowing. Merely set the sail of your mind to catch it. And Abhinavagupta said a similar thing with a different image. He said, A covered jar collects no rainwater. So we have to be receptive. Now, when the mind is perfectly concentrated in meditation and fixed unwaveringly on a single object, we tend to lose track of time. I'm sure you've all had this experience during your meditation, or not even during your meditation. In the ordinary waking state, if something really grasps your attention, you can spend a long while involved with something without any feeling of passage of time. And suddenly you look at the clock and you think, oh my God, I thought maybe that was five minutes, a whole hour has passed. So the idea here is that when the mind is fully engaged in something, the perception of time slows down. And the explanation is simple. Time and change are inseparable. But for the one-pointed mind, there is little change, and therefore little perception of time. So in the highest contemplative absorption, samadhi, when thought ceases entirely and every movement in consciousness is still completely, there remains only awareness of ever-present reality between the thoughts, and that is the experience of eternity. Even before we reach full realization, we can become receptive to instantaneous, intuitive flashes. A characteristic of such moment of insight is that it is non-sequential, An entire idea flashes in our awareness all at once, in undivided wholeness, without any reference to time. This is an instant of opportunity that flashes like lightning and takes us momentarily beyond our smallness and limitation. This is a moment called Vishwaspada, a universal expansion of consciousness, and it gives us an intimation of our own infinite and eternal nature we get a glimpse of the state of the enlightened soul, who can rightly declare, I am Shiva, Shivoham, or I am Brahman, Aham Brahmasmi. And again, the Sanskrit word for eternity is Nityatva, which literally means the state of abiding in one's own inherent being. Even before self-realization, we can experience these momentary glimpses, which engender a feeling of wonder. That wonder is the wonder of infinity, in eternity, a glimpse in the here and now to the indescribable bliss of the self, realizing our true identity as Shiva, as Brahman, as the Supreme Self, is life's highest purpose and the culmination of all our spiritual practice. But practice is possible only in the realm of time. So even though we cannot hold on to time, which is ever-changing, we can certainly seize the moment. Om Advam Jwalati Jyotir Ahamasmi Jyotir Jwalati Brahma Hamasmi Yahamasmi Brahma Hamasmi Ahamasmi Brahma Hamasmi Ahameva Hamam Juhomi Swaha The light within me shines. 
I am the light. The light that shines brightly, I am that Brahman. That which I am is nothing but Brahman. I am and I am Brahman. I myself offer myself into the infinite light, which is myself. Om Shanti 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 Peace, peace, peace. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.